Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights, Ether 12 through 15. So as we start today's uh, block of scripture, the the amazing thing to look at from a big picture perspective is that we're now coming down to the end of the Jaredite civilization. So as you look at this Book of Mormon, Mormon gave us the terrible conclusion to the Nephite uh, people in his book. Now Moroni adds a second witness to what happens to an entire group of people who are, quite frankly, really good at the beginning, but and they go through these cycles of pride, but what happens to them when they continually reject God's prophets and they reject the inspiration that comes from the Holy Ghost and they, they don't exercise their faith? What happens? You get a second witness in this book of two nations being destroyed. So it's a book of not, not just second witness but, but contrasts and comparisons within itself. You get later on in the lesson we're going to talk about Shiz and Coriantumr. You get Ether with the, the leadership of the people contrasted the prophet versus what's going on with the, the government leaders at the time. And as we jump into chapter 12, you're going to see some contrasts between Moroni and the brother of Jared, and we'll talk about those in a minute, so hold that thought. But he begins in chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, It came to pass that the days of Ether were in the days of Coriantumr, and Coriantumr was king over all the land. So now we've made it down to the very end of this uh, Jaredite civilization, and you'll notice uh, that Moroni's abridging style is a little different than his dad, Mormon. His dad gave us great detail over the Nephite history. Moroni's much quicker hitting. He's, he's flown through these 30 generations of people down to uh, ether, and he's spending significant time inserting his own commentary whenever he uh, whenever he sees fit, like, like is the case here in chapter 12. So here we are at the end, he's going to put the story on hold of the Jaredites, and we'll pick that up in chapter 13, and now he launches into, I think it's got to be one of the greatest sections of, of prophetic commentary in all of the scriptures that we have. I love this chapter. So look at verse 3. So he finishes up with this idea of Ether being the prophet prophesying. He did cry from the morning even until the going down of the sun, exhorting the people to believe in God unto repentance, lest they should be destroyed, saying unto them that by faith all things are fulfilled. You'll notice that's the jumping off point. He's telling the story, and it's that part that triggers something for Moroni to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to talk about faith and this, this repentance. So look at verse 4. Wherefore, whoso believeth in God might with surety 
hope for a better world. You'll notice the words with surety. It's not with a high degree of probability or I, I, I sure hope this is going to happen. No, it's with surety we can hope for a better world. And as you look around our world today, regardless of which country you live in or which uh, part of this world you live in, I think we can all get this idea that, boy, we hope there's a better world than, than the situation in which we live today in, in some of the struggles that we're facing as a society and as a culture and as, as collective children of God on this earth. Notice how he describes what that better world might look like. Yea, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith, and maketh an anchor to the souls of men, which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. That's a pretty good verse to describe what we can do even in a difficult world with struggles, that we can move forward with this hope that comes of our faith, making this anchor to our souls, which causes us to then abound in good works. Not that those works are going to save us, but that those works change the environment around us in such a way to spread the light and the love and the, the faith of the Lord to others. Look at verse 5. It came to pass that Ether did prophesy great and marvelous things unto the people which they did not believe because they saw them not. Interesting. He's prophesying these great things that they can look forward to and they didn't believe him because they couldn't see it. Living in our world today, having this Book of Mormon as a handbook for us today, I think you can probably understand how easy it would be for us to turn our back on the Lord and to turn our back on faith and say, no, you've got all these prophecies of all these amazing things going to happen. No, look at what I'm seeing on the news. Look at what I'm reading on, on the internet about what, what is really happening in this world. You can see how easily a society could just totally reject the prophet's words if we're not careful. So now Moroni interjects again, verse 6, and now I, Moroni, would speak somewhat concerning these things. Brothers and sisters, notice whenever Moroni jumps in, he's not preaching to Nephites, nor is he preaching to, to people around him in his, in his day. He's looking down the corridor of time at us. He's speaking directly to you and directly to me. Having seen our day, he says, basically, you could reword verse 6 to say, now I, Moroni, I would speak somewhat unto you in the latter days concerning these things that are happening thousands of years before I'm here. So here's Moroni in this, bridging this gap between the ancient history for him and the future, which is our day, and here's what he has to tell us. I would show unto the world and I always like personalizing the scriptures so you can insert your own name there, or I would show unto you, not just all of the world, but specifically, what can I learn from Moroni here? That faith is things which are hoped for and not seen, wherefore dispute not because ye see not, 
for you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith." Huh. That's interesting coming from the stylus or the pen of Moroni who has been through untold horrors in his life, watching all of his own society be totally destroyed by wickedness, by secret combinations and pride, and then the Lamanites taking uh, taking over the situation and killing off all of his people and, and, and his family. And here's a guy who's been alone for at least 20 years, 21 years, and it's going to be up to 36 years and then who knows how long beyond after that. Here's a guy who is writing with authenticity. He's not just teaching something to say, here, do that. Here's a guy who's living it. He is showing us what it means to move forward in faith, hoping for a better world. He's, he's looking forward to a better world, but he's all alone as far as this world is concerned. Nobody's, nobody's giving him likes. He doesn't have very many followers on his uh, social media accounts of the day, but he doesn't need any of that. He doesn't care because he knows who he's following and he knows whose errand he is on, and that's all that matters. Nothing else that this world can offer him matters to Moroni, and I love that. I want to be more like that. Now, notice his description with this beautiful concept of faith. Faith, he makes it very clear, is things which are hoped for and not seen. So, if you look at this concept of faith, uh, in the Kirtland era of church history, Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and other leaders of the church, they, they put together and, and authorized and used some lectures, seven lectures on faith that they would give to the, uh, to the elders of the church before they would send them out on their missions. So that was their, their mission training experience, was to go through the lectures on faith. In the lectures on faith, we read that faith is this grand governing principle. It, it underlies every action we make. We wouldn't do anything if it isn't driven by faith. Now, here's the critical point. Faith, all by itself, drives all of our action, but the faith we're talking about that really matters, that leads to actions that, that eternally are significant, is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's faith in God. That's faith that leads to life and salvation, and in the lectures on faith, the, the majority of the, the time is spent on teaching what do you have to do to get to that kind of faith where it leads to life and salvation. And there are three elements that those lectures lay out that you have to have. Number one, you have to have an idea that God exists. This is interesting because if you stop and think about how God does this in the history of time, he doesn't stay veiled and cloaked behind that veil forever indefinitely and hope that somebody's going to figure out that there's a higher being, that there's a creator, that there's somebody who's, 
who's sustaining life. He opens the veil, reveals himself to chosen vessels, special witnesses, closes the veil, now they go and preach. They spread the idea that God exists, allowing the Holy Ghost an opportunity to touch people's hearts. But that's not good enough. That's step one. You can't really have faith in God unto life and salvation if all you say is, yeah, I think there's a higher be- – I, I believe there's a higher being up there. So the lectures on faith go on to say you have to have a correct idea. Notice it's not just an idea. It has to be rooted in truth, a correct idea of God's attributes, his characteristics, put that one here, and his perfections. You have to know what kind of a being he is in order to really have faith in him. If we believed in a god that was like Jupiter or Zeus, I I don't know that we would want to go and spend eternity with those kinds of beings, but when we know that God is a god of creation, a god of love, a god of mercy, a god of power, a god of knowledge, that he doesn't change, that he's not a respecter of persons, that he's a god of justice, fairness is eternal justice is part of his attributes, he's a god of judgment, then when we get all of his attributes, characteristics, and perfections, a correct idea of them, we can begin to exercise more faith. We can let go of some anxiety and fear that we have and put that at the, at the feet of the Lord and move forward in faith that he's going to take care of all these things. He, he knows what he's doing and he's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving. He, he, he knows what he's doing here. That's not enough, according to the lectures on faith. To finish it off, you have to have eventually – notice we've gone from an idea to a correct idea to a knowledge that the course in my life, the course of my life, what I'm doing with my life is in accordance with God's will, that what I am doing is what God wants me to do, that I'm moving forward on the covenant path, I'm pleasing to God. According to lectures on faith, with all three of those in in place and growing and developing over a lifetime, you're not born with faith, most of us. You, you have to grow into this and exercise it like a muscle and it, it might have some times in life where it ebbs and others where it flows and we, we have to keep working at this, but this is within the capacity of all of us to get to this level of faith in Christ unto life and salvation. And you'll notice we live in a world that says, show me, then I'll believe, predominantly. Not everyone, not everywhere, I get that, but predominantly it's this – it's the skeptical, sit back, wait until something is proven before I'll then engage. Um, it's the – it's the idea of if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Those are Jesus' own words saying, 
if, if you want to know if something's of God, I've, I've taught you, then do it, live it, take the leap of faith, and you're going to discover some things about yourself and about God in the doing of these things, and then after you do them, then you're going to uh, receive the witness after the trial of your faith, not before. I'm really grateful that Tyler reminded us of these amazing truths that come out of the lectures on faith, and we'll talk more about the lectures on faith in the DNC year that's coming up soon for Come Follow Me, and it's interesting, the lectures on faith were originally, actually, if you look at the Doctrine and Covenants, just briefly an aside, were originally called the Book of Commandments, and when the lectures on faith were included in the Book of Commandments, the church changed the book to Doctrine and Covenants. And so actually the doctrine was the lectures on faith. Just an interesting note. So we encourage you to read lectures on faith again. So let's unpack a bit more what Moroni is seeing in Ether chapter 12, verse 6. Look at some of these words here that he uses. And we're pausing on this because of all the things we could talk about, speaking about faith in Jesus Christ is one of the most significant. So let's talk about how he says, I show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore dispute not, because you see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. So let's talk about a couple words here. The word witness. In a past lesson, we talked about how this word is related to a lot of other words that we happen to know in our language. A witness comes through seeing, and our word video means to see. You're watching a video right now. You are seeing something. And seeing something gives you evidence. And notice that the base word of evidence is video. But you have to do the trial. And that comes from the word try. We did not get sent down to this earth to sit comfortably on a couch watching other people live their lives. We came down to try things. And the purpose of the atonement is to help us overcome failed trials. Now, we all know, we've been told pretty clearly there's a whole bunch of things that you, we shouldn't try. But in terms of all the things that we could try in our lives that could help us grow and develop to be like God are innumerable. And imagine a scientist who says, I'm not going to do the trial until I have evidence that I'm going to get what I want out of the trial. In the world of science and in our own lives, the only way to learn is by trying things and learning from the experience. And again, the power of the atonement is we may make, may make mistakes. I may drive down a road that turns out to be the wrong way. In fact, let me just tell a brief story about this. Some years ago, my wife was uh, got an opportunity to study Shakespeare at the Folger Institute in Washington, D.C. So, while she was off studying during the day, I was doing a variety of activities around Washington, D.C., which is a very large city with lots of roads. 
And I took a lot of wrong turns. I was trying to get places, and I took many wrong turns in trying to get to different places. By the end of that summer, I knew where to go because I knew where all the roads went. And usually, most of the roads did not go where I wanted to because I had driven down all of them and learned, oh, that doesn't take me where I want to go. I had had all sorts of trials, and I saw things, and I got evidence. So in your life, you might ask yourself, what am I trying to do? What evidence am I seeking? And am I willing to go out and run the risk of some failure, being a bit uncomfortable, in order to be able to see more broadly what God has to offer me in my life? And just remember that you can have total trust and confidence in the atonement of Jesus Christ to cover you. What would happen if I went and tried out a new job? built new friendships, tried a new form of service, um, maybe a new form of humility. Maybe I tried to be more introspective. Maybe I tried to pray longer. Maybe I tried a new way of spending time in the scriptures. Try, try, try. And as you act, you will see. God will give you witnesses through visions, and you will have evidence of who he is. And I think that summarizes powerfully what Moroni is trying to get at here, that you have no witness until you try your faith. Okay, so let's look at how he proceeds with this discussion of faith and where he takes it. Look at verse 7. For it was by faith that Christ showed himself unto our fathers after he had risen from the dead, and he showed not himself unto them until after they had faith in him. So. He's, he picks up this idea of God parting the veil and showing himself to people on the earth after they have faith, so to speak. Uh, you have your dispensation heads who he shows himself to them first, and then everybody thereafter, it's this invitation of seek, seek after Jesus, seek to get to this level of faith. So look at what he says in verse 8. But because of the faith of men, he has shown himself unto the world and glorified the name of the Father and prepared a way that thereby others might be partakers of the heavenly gift, that they might hope for those things which they have not seen. There are lots of ways to interpret the heavenly gift. One of them would be this that he focuses on here is all of these miracles that Christ is going to, to shower down upon those who have faith and according to his will. Look at verse 9, wherefore ye may also have hope and be partakers of the gift if ye will but have faith. Again, Moroni is talking to us in the latter days. He's saying this isn't just reserved for the ancients. This is for you. You can also have this hope. Behold, it was by faith that they of old were called after the holy order of God. And now he gives you this incredible verse 11. Wherefore, by faith was the law of Moses given, but in the gift of his Son hath God prepared a more excellent way, and it is by faith that it hath been fulfilled. So he says, look, the, the law of Moses was given and it served a wonderful purpose but through the gift of his Son is where we get the more excellent way. 
Isn't it beautiful that in John 14, 6, Jesus tells his disciples at that Last Supper, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The more excellent way is Jesus himself, and to, to trust him and have faith in him and do the things that he would have us do. Look at verse 12, for if there be no faith among the children of men, God can do no miracle. That's interesting. Our faith in God unlocks miracles in our life and in the lives of our loved ones. And then he gives you this, this long list of people who demonstrated great faith and experienced great miracles. Alma, Amulek in 13, 14 has the, the brothers Nephi and Lehi, 15 you get Ammon and his brethren, and then he goes on to say, everyone, all they who have wrought miracles wrought them by faith. Then verse 17, the three disciples. Then he jumps down into verse 20, including the brother of Jared and this incredible record that I have. And then something fascinating happens. Moroni shifts into some introspection of his own where he starts doing some uh, analysis on his writing. Look at verse 23. Here he is in the middle of this writing this record, and verse 23 he says, Lord, the Gentiles will mock at these things because of our weakness in writing. For, Lord, thou hast made us mighty in word by faith, but thou hast not made us mighty in writing, for thou hast made all this people that they could speak much because of the Holy Ghost which thou hast given them, and thou hast made us that we could write but little because of the awkwardness of our hands. Can you remember the fact that uh, Mormon was made the, a chief captain at age 15 in his 16th year? He was a large and mighty man, and we would assume that Moroni got those same genes, that he would be this large, mighty warrior. His hands and his arms and his body are built for, for battle and for, for the army, and here he is with a stylus, and he has to write these dainty little characters, this, this large hand, and he says, we, can't, we can only write but little because of the awkwardness of our hands. I can picture him with this struggle writing on those plates, looking down the quarter of time at us with our keyboards and our computers, and we mess up or we want to move text, and we just move entire chunks or delete and add and copy and paste all over, and here he is with this stylus and these metal plates, I can just picture this, oh, you have no idea how hard this is kind of a feeling going on. Look what he does now. Behold, thou hast not made us mighty in writing like unto the brother of Jared, for thou madest him that the things which he wrote were mighty even as thou art, even unto the overpowering of man to read them. Here's the guy who's read all of the writings of the brother of Jared, and he's just moved by the power of that writing, and can you picture this? Can you picture him reading the records of the brother of Jared? And as he does that, I'll just draw it in book form if you'll forgive me, even though they're on plates. And then he looks at his own uh, writing and he's doing this comparison. He's like, huh, he's way better at this than I am. And the more he gets into this, the worse his writing seems to his own eyes. Look at verse 25. 
thou hast also made our words powerful and great, even that we cannot write them. He's like, Lord, I have I have so much I want to say, and when we speak, we're able to speak with power and authority, and it moves people, but when I go to try to write that, and by the way, we're speaking, he told us earlier, reformed, uh, a reformed version of Hebrew, and now we have to write it in reformed Egyptian script of some sort, that translation process, a lot gets lost, and he's saying, wherefore, when we write, we behold our weakness and stumble because of the placing of our words, and I fear lest the Gentiles shall mock at our words. Can you picture this, this prophet all alone with those plates? And he's been reading the plates of the brother of Jared, moved to the core by what he reads, and then he looks at his own and thinks, uh, this is so bad, people in the latter days are going to mock. I just have to ask you, when is the last time that you have come to the end of Mormon's words in Mormon chapter 7 and then picked up Moroni's words in Mormon chapter 8 and then read through getting into the book of Ether? When's the last time that you thought to yourself, ah, this is, this is hard, and now we have to read Moroni's words. They're just terrible compared to everybody else's. They're just this is this is very hard to read his words because he's such a terrible writer. Have you ever had that experience? Moroni is one of my favorite authors in all of the scripture. He has some of the most profound chapters for me personally of the entire scripture canon. I love this guy. And one of the other reasons I love him is because he, he lets us in on his feelings of inadequacy. And I would guess that uh, some of you who are watching can relate to this. If not, all of you can relate to this. Feelings of inadequacy, feelings of what I'm doing isn't very good compared to what other people are doing people are going to make fun of me. This isn't, this isn't measuring up to the standards that, that some would expect. And I love the fact that Moroni let us in on this. There's one other prophet in the Book of Mormon who lets us in on this same kind of an idea, and it's Nephi. Back in 2 Nephi 33, verse 1, he opened up with the same complaint. His, here's Moroni's one of his earliest ancestors in this whole story saying the similar things of, wow, we're, we can speak well, but we're not, we're not very good in writing. Uh, it's, it's a real difficulty. So you can cross-reference this section back to 2 Nephi 33 verse 1 to see this, this comparison. Now watch what God does. Watch the next step, verse 26. And when I had said this, the Lord spake unto me, saying, Fools mock. You notice how easy it is to mock? You notice how easy it is to notice what other people are doing wrong and then point it out and make fun of it? Uh, I love the fact that God himself is saying to Moroni, Fools mock, but they shall mourn, and my grace is sufficient for, for the meek that they shall take no advantage of your weakness. Now, verse 27, one of my favorite all-time verses anywhere, written 
by Moroni in the midst of his struggle with, I'm not a very good writer, come some of the best words I know. Verse 27. Now let's go slow here. And if men come unto me, notice, if he doesn't force them, it's a choice, it's an agency. We, we can, we can, this is a trial of our faith. We have to try to find those avenues to get to God. If men come unto me, not the world, not, not getting a pulse on what everybody out there in the world wants me to do, but what God wants me to do, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I can guarantee that every time I go to the Lord in this level of humility, in this level of faith in him, asking for, for help, he rarely identifies the exact weakness that I think was my weakness. Notice he says, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. It's usually, usually different to one degree or another than what I thought my weakness was. Notice he says, I give unto men weakness that they may be humble, and my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me, for if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. I grew up believing if I'm bad at something, then I just need to be humble and pray for God to bless me to become really good at it and then work like crazy, must do better, and then somehow that thing would become, I would be one of the best in the world at that. Well, I learned after many fatiguing failures that that didn't always work. Now, there are some things that you can absolutely go after, and, and I don't want to take that away from people. You can, you can practice and practice and, and make a, a weakness become a strength, no question. But I think the significant thing we're talking about here is stuff that's eternally significant, those weaknesses of mortality. If you look at uh, verse 27, he says, I give unto men weakness. So here we have this fallen condition, this weakness that is given unto us to make us humble, but his grace is sufficient. Now, check this out. Let me ask you a really simple question, okay? Uh, what is Moroni's weakness? Now, most of you are thinking to yourself, uh, Brother Griffin, that is a really silly question because he's been telling us all along what his weakness is. He's not a very good writer compared to the brother of Jared. Uh, if, if writing is truly Moroni's weakness, then what should we see? We should see somewhat of a progression, okay? So the first chapter that Moroni wrote was Mormon 8 and 9, and then he picks up with Ether, and then he's going to write his ten chapters in the book of Moroni. And here we are studying chapter 12, verse 26 and 27, right? Specifically 27. So if this, if this is true, that writing is his weakness, he's clearly showing us that he's humble, 
he's clearly showing us that he's coming to the Lord, so let's look at the formula. If men humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. So if that's his weakness, he's met the conditions, the, the requirements in order to get the miracle, then what we should see is some, let's just draw a, a little graph here over time from Mormon 8 through Moroni 10, and this would be the level of quality of writing. Then what we should see is some pretty awful writing here, and he recognizes some things, and now he's finally humble enough to recognize his weakness in writing, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Now we should see this kind of a progression in Moroni's writing. Perhaps that's what's happening here, and perhaps I'm just missing it. But brothers and sisters, Mormon 8's powerful. Ether chapter 2 and 3, I'd put those chapters up against any chapter in all of the scriptures anywhere, at any time in the history of, of the world. I don't see that at all. I see writing that is incredible, and I don't see this huge uptake in his ability after verse 27. I wonder if God meant what he said when he told Moroni, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I think God might be saying to Moroni, you're barking up the wrong tree. Your problem isn't your writing ability. Your problem, Moroni, potentially, is you're comparing yourself to other people, and it's that's a weakness. Don't do it anymore. It's not helpful. It's holding you back. And by the way, if that's true, if, if that is the case, then look at who he happens to be comparing himself to in his writing ability. The brother of Jared, who was at the Tower of Babel, who prayed that the Lord would not confound their language, which means we're, we're back in the dispensation of, of Noah, so we're getting way further back in time, closer to Adam, we're much closer to the perfect language that we, we call uh, Adamic, so he's got this more pure language that he's writing in, and he's not constrained by speaking in Hebrew and having to write in Egyptian, and he's had this incredible panoptic vision, of course his writing's going to be amazing. <laughs> so don't compare yourself to his strength. God has given you a task to do, Moroni, and if this is true, if comparison is the true weakness that God is helping to become a strength for Moroni, then what we should see is that pre-1227, we should see Moroni on occasion being frustrated with himself because he's not a very good writer in comparison to, to maybe Mormon or Nephi or Jacob or the brother of Jared, and if it's true, then after 1227, we should see him start to improve in that. Well, guess what you don't get after verse 27? 
you don't get Moroni ever comparing himself to the brother of Jared again. In fact, post-1227, Moroni's only going to mention his, his weak writing ability one more time, and it's, it's in passing. Look at verse uh, 40. And only a few have I written because of my weakness in writing. But it's almost as if he, he writes that and then he, he, doesn't, he doesn't wallow in it. Yeah, I'm such a bad writer. And man, these plates and it's so hard to, to correct and to get your thoughts right and to trans. He just doesn't go there. Why? Because God keeps his promises. I will take weak things and make them strong unto them. So to Moroni, those scratches that he's making, those, those words that he's putting down on plates, they're not very eloquent. They don't look nearly as good as, as uh, the brother of Jared's, and his handwriting is probably more sloppy than the brother of Jared's because of his, his – uh, the way he describes it because of the awkwardness of our hands. The implication is, wow, I, I can't even spell right or something like that. The fact is God takes Moroni's best effort and he makes it strong unto not just Moroni but unto them, which to me is us. His weak offering from his own perspective was placed on the altar and God then magnifies it. That's what a God does. Brothers and sisters, I know that there are many of you who are sitting watching this thinking to yourself, I'll never be as good as sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so or I'll never measure up to the promises in my patriarchal blessing or I'll never, I'll never be as good as I need to be. Can I just say that if Moroni himself were standing here today, I think he might invite you to let go of all of those comparisons either outwardly or even the ones in the mirror with who you think you should be and simply look heavenward. Humbly look to God, come unto Christ in faith and ask him to reveal to you your weaknesses. Those are the ones you want to work on, not the ones you've self-diagnosed. Uh, eventually they might make it onto the list from heaven, but for now go to God and see what he tells you to do would be my invitation. Now, he finishes off this chapter uh, speaking about how the brother of Jared had great faith. Uh, look at verse 31. Thus didst thou manifest thyself unto thy disciples, for after they had faith and did speak in thy name, thou didst show thyself unto them in great power, which means like Taylor's experience in Washington, D.C., the implication in my mind is you have these prophets who have come before him who have gone through their life. They've, they know they're not perfect. They know they have human mortal weakness. They're fully aware of it, but they try their very best to move the work forward. And over time, that exercising of their faith, before you know it, their muscles of faith are such that they cannot be held within the veil, uh, and he's, he's been talking about that throughout this, this entire chapter. Look at verse 38 now. Now I, Moroni, bid farewell unto the Gentiles, yea, and also unto my brethren whom I love 
until we shall meet before the judgment seat of Christ, where all men shall know that my garments are not spotted with your blood, and then shall you know that I have seen Jesus, and that he hath talked with me face to face, and that he hath told me in plain humility, even as a man telleth another, in mine own language concerning these things. The major scripture writers in the Book of Mormon, the four biggest scripture uh, writers on the plates, Nephi, Jacob, Mormon, Moroni, all four of them tell us in the text very clearly. They don't, they don't hint at it, they just come right out and say, I have seen my Redeemer. I've heard his voice. I've gotten my commission directly from him, and now they're bearing a powerful prophetic witness of his reality which lays a very sure foundation for us on which we can build our faith and try as we move forward to, uh, as President Hinckley said, try a little harder to be a little better. And notice how he ends this, this little insert of his into the Jaredite story, verse 41. Now I would commend you to seek this Jesus of whom the prophets and the apostles have written, that the grace of God the Father and also the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of them, may be and abide in you forever. Amen. And he finishes there with this invitation to come unto Christ, and this is coming from a man who has come unto Christ. He knows of what he speaks. He's tasted of the goodness. He's partaken of that part of the heavenly gift, and he's now inviting us to live our life and to exercise our faith in such a way that we too can seek this Jesus and recognize our true weakness and have that become a strength as we move forward. Are the scriptures and the gospel amazing and beautiful? Let's dwell for just a, another mo moment or two on Ether chapter 12, verse 27, and listen again to what God promises to Moroni and by extension all of us. He says near the end of that verse, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. We are all weak. We all have fallen nature, but we all desire to become like God. And I think it's significant that the name for God is Elohim. Now, this is the plural in Hebrew, and the word El often is translated as God in Hebrew, but comes from a far more ancient meaning that just means strong or the strong one. So consider that. God is the strong one. If we put the plural in, he's, he's the plural of strength. And what does he say to Moroni? I'm strong, and you will be strong in me. As you bind yourself to me, in your weakness, your weaknesses get washed away in my strength. Now, let's conclude the book of Ether. It's as discouraging as reading the ending of the Nephite civilization as people de descend into chaos, descend into conflict, and they lose all love for one another. So 
Let's talk about the ending of the Book of Ether. Essentially, the civilization of the Jaredites descends into total chaos between two sides, and the wars go on for years. And we get passages in the Book of Ether where the people in the nation choose to either join with Shiz or with Coriantumr, and they battle it all out until finally all that's left is just Coriantumr and Shiz, the leaders of these two parties, and Coriantumr finally overcomes Shiz, and Coriantumr, in addition to Ether, appears to be the last remaining Jaredite. So I wonder, in our own lives today, do we divide ourselves? Do we separate ourselves? And then I wonder, how are we like this today? Let's think about this a bit more. Did the people in each camp, what stories might the people of Shiv's claimed about the people of Coriantumr? And were those stories true? Did the people of Shiz take the time to listen and understand what the people of Coriantumr were trying to accomplish, what they valued, what they cared about? Let's turn to the other side. Did the people in the camp of Coriantumr, do you think that they saw the people of Shiz as real people, as sons and daughters of God with meaningful lives and deep interest in things that might be good? What stories might they have told about the people of Shiz? And why did people choose one side or the other? And once they made that choice, why did they stay in those parties? And in our own lives, we might ask ourselves, what groups have I chosen? And when I choose that group, what stories do I tell about other groups? And are those stories true? I wonder what would have happened had these people stopped asking themselves, what are we fighting for? I wonder today how many people in society have chosen sides and then fight for power, and they're willing to support any amount of corruption to be able to get power, no matter the consequences. It's just an interesting thought. Are we like the Jaredites today? Are we choosing sides without really understanding the consequences of our choices? Now, I'm not talking about like whether we've chosen to be in the gospel or not, I'm talking about all the other groups that are available to us in our lives, political, social, and otherwise. If Jesus had come up to the Jaredites, which group would he have chosen to join? Or maybe he would have stood right here and said, let's ask ourselves, what do we really care about? What are we trying to accomplish? And I wonder if they had taken the time to just stop and love one another and take time to understand each other and what each side or group or individual wanted to accomplish and was trying to accomplish for their lives. There's a little approach that comes out of the business world, popularized by the Toyota manufacturing. And I wonder, had they, these people known this, they may have actually been able to avoid the chaos and destruction of their civilization. They may have been able to, able to find out what are they truly trying to accomplish. Sure, maybe there are people out there that all they want is power, but my sense is that most people, most children of God, want to live flourishing, happy, peaceful lives. And that sometimes we get distracted by power mongers among us who want their own interests and not God's interests, and we feel like we have to choose a side and then fight the other side that we're not part of. 
So let me tell just briefly about how the five whys works. Uh, the story goes that in United States, in the capital city of Washington, D.C., there's a memorial to Thomas Jefferson. Beautiful white limestone monument. Some years ago, the, uh, the National Park Service that runs that monument noticed that the stone on the monument was deteriorating. And they started investigating and realized, oh, the cleaning supplies that we're using on the stone is destroying the stone. So we might pause and ask, what's the solution? Well, most of us would realize, well, change the cleaning supplies. Change it to something that's not destructive to the stone. That seems like a simple answer. But if we stop and ask five whys, we might get to the heart of the matter. And before I finish the story about the Jefferson Memorial, we might ask in our own lives, have we asked five whys about what motivates our actions? Have we stopped to ask the five whys of what motivates other people? What are they really trying to get at? And if you dig down and keep asking why, you get to more powerful, truer, deeper realities. So here's what's happened. Instead of just simply changing the cleaning supplies about the Jefferson Memorial Stone, they said, well, why are we cleaning the rock so much? And they noticed there was uh, bird droppings all over the monument. Well, that was coming from the pigeons, the birds nearby. So they thought, well, okay, maybe the answer is to get rid of the birds. But they asked why again. Why are there so many birds near the monument? And as they investigated, they realized the birds were eating bugs off the monument. Well, somebody might stop asking why and say, oh, well, clearly get rid of the bugs. That may be an answer, but what if you ask why are the bugs there in the first place? And what do they discover is at night, when the lights were flooding the lime, white limestone with beautiful light, the bugs would be attracted to the, to the white limestone and they'd go hang out on the limestone and the birds come eat them. So by asking why multiple times, the park individuals realized that if they simply turned off the lights after about 10 o'clock at night when there really weren't any tourists around, that the bugs would not come hang out on the monument and therefore the birds wouldn't come and they, and eat the bugs, because there were no bugs, and there wouldn't be bird droppings everywhere, which meant they didn't have to clean the monument with the toxic chemicals. And they got to the truth of the matter, is they could actually save on electricity and just turn off the lights at night. Solve the problem. Pretty simple. But very often as humans, we want to jump to the first conclusion, we want to jump to the first answer, we want to believe that the other side is totally evil, and if we don't stop it at all costs, and no matter how much corruption or power we're willing to get for ourselves to stop them, it's worth it, stop and ask, what's motivating me? What am I really trying to accomplish? What's motivating the other side? And really, should there be sides? Or are we all in this together as children of God, seeking to build a better, more prosperous future? And the tale of the Jaredites and even the Nephites is witness of the failure when societies lose love, they lose empathy, they lose curiosity for other people. And our invitation, and really this is the invitation from the gospel, is to love one another, to be curious about other people's lives, to be empathetic, to seek to understand what they care about, what they hope for, and how, as children of God, they seek to have better lives. And so instead of just defining people based on the side they're on, really getting to know people for who they truly are, 
and perhaps that can help us avoid the fate that the Nephites and the Jaredites suffered. Thank you for spending time with us today. The Lord loves you, and we encourage you to spread light and goodness wherever you go.